We've looked at his death. Today we'll look at his tomb. And next week we will look at the effects of his resurrection. So in week one, we looked at how history and the Bible both agree that Jesus was an actual man, an actual historical figure who really did live and he was Jewish. The debate is whether this man, Jesus, was in fact the Christ, the Son of God, or whether he was an ordinary man. Okay, so we talked about that in week one. Last week, we showed how both history, secular history, and especially people who are, you know, agnostic or atheistic or, or anti the divinity of Christ, history and the Bible both say the following. Jesus Christ died by execution by the means of crucifixion at the hands of Pontius Pilate at the very same time period in history that the Bible says. So both history and the Bible agree on that. But again, the debate is, was it the Son of God who was crucified or was it Jesus claiming to be the Messiah who was put to death but he was just an ordinary man and died a a very tragic death thinking he was the Messiah and going to death because of it? Today we'll look at his tomb and then next week Pastor Stewart's going to wrap it all up by talking about the impact that his resurrection had on both his followers and on Saul of Tarsus. Both history and the Bible would agree that there were hundreds of people who claimed that they met and they had first-hand experience with the resurrected Christ. History and the Bible would say it transformed their life and history would also say that all of those people or most of those people happily died as a result of their belief that their life had been transformed by the resurrected. Christ. So we'll wrap it all up next week, but this week we're going to look specifically about his tomb. And we're going to read from the Gospel of Mark this morning. Mark is the shortest of the Gospel narratives in the New Testament, and it's the least unique in the, in the sense that most of Mark, over 80% of Mark, is also, uh, those stories are also covered in the other Gospels. But this particular account of the resurrection is very important for us because he goes into painstaking detail to give us clues and to show us that he's not writing a legend, he's actually writing history. And we'll go through that this morning. Let me read to you this morning from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Saturday evening when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? God already had this figured out, didn't he? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in white robes sitting on the right side. All these details that we just kind of gloss over, they're all extremely important. Don't be alarmed, the angel says. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Aren't you thankful for those words? He's not here. You can go crawl in that tomb and any other tomb today, and they have still not found him. He is not in a tomb. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now, Go and tell his disciples, including Peter, and there's a whole message in those two words that we won't get to today, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You'll see him there just as he told you. The angel's kind of giving him a little jab here saying he's told you over and over and over. He's going to rise again. He's going to rise again. He's going to rise again. And just as he told you, he's risen ahead. And this is what he told you just before he died. The women fled from the tomb trembling and bewildered and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened 
So here's, here's the big idea for this morning. Here's kind of the statement that we're, we're going to go after today. It's a little bit lengthy. I'll read it through for you twice. If you have your notes with it, you can follow along, fill in the blanks, and make sure that I end before the Ravens play the Raiders at 425 this afternoon. The big idea is that the facts that Jesus was, two facts, that he was one, buried in a well-known tomb, and two, that the tomb was reported to be found empty by his followers. Those two statements, those two facts, are statements which the Bible reports as true and secular history has been unable to disprove. The debate surrounds the questions of why was Jesus' tomb empty and was Jesus raised from the dead by God or was the disappearance of his body, was it all a hoax? So two statements that history and the Bible are aligned on, or at least I'd say it this way. The Bible claims it is true, and though history has tried, it has been unable to disprove. Okay, these two statements. First of all, that Jesus was buried in a well-known tomb. In other words, he wasn't left to hang out on the cross where animals just tore away at his body. In other words, he wasn't buried in a mass grave. He wasn't buried in a criminal's grave. He wasn't buried in some unknown tomb. In other words, they didn't dig up a hole in the ground and put his body in there. They believe, both history and the Bible teach, that Jesus was buried in a well-known tomb. There were not many of these tombs that, the Bible, that were hewn by hand. You had to have some serious money back in the day to use hand tools to carve into the rock and make yourself an actual tomb. You know, this guy, you know, most people, if they didn't have a lot of money, they'd just dig a hole in the ground and they'd bury you, which was unique for someone to be hung on a cross, to be taken down and placed in a tomb. Both history and the Bible would say he was placed in a tomb, none of these other options. And that the tomb was reported to be found empty by his followers. In fact, history doesn't deny that the tomb was found empty. There would be one really easy way to disprove all of this. It's a great ringtone. Oh no, really, it's okay if it's Domino's. I'm starving, so please let them know I'm here. Like, have them come in here and make me... There'd be one really easy way to disprove all of this, wouldn't it? What would that easy way be? Yeah, some bones, a body. I mean, literally, if you could find Jesus' body, find some DNA, you'd disprove all of this, couldn't you? Think about it. If you found Jesus' body, somebody, that's not a big deal to me. It's a big deal to me. If you find his body, all of this is a hoax. <laughs> it's a sham. Well, I would still believe because I want to go to heaven. That's just wishy-washy. If your faith is such that you could deny the resurrection and think you're going to heaven, you don't have faith. You've just got this very poorly thought through, well-wishing, finger crossed, hoping that there's an afterlife and no matter what we take, that's just wishy-washy. It's not even intellectually credible. This is why history has a hard time disproving this because I haven't found his body or his bones or some DNA. They haven't found any of it. And trust me, there have been people that have been digging for years and years and years and years and years. And in fact, most of history and most of the people who don't want to believe in the resurrection of Christ have to, what they've done is they've tried to explain why the tomb was empty, not that it was empty. You following me? They're not denying that the tomb was empty. Go read the end of the Gospels. This conspiracy theory started at the time of the writing of the Gospels. They said, we've got to come up with some reason why the stone was rolled away and the guards left or all these people are going to go crazy. Let's concoct this story that the disciples hauled off his body in the middle of the night. You see, history and the Bible both say that Jesus lived, that he was a Jewish man, that he was executed, he hung on the cross, and that he was crucified. There is no debate. People who want to deny those things, you're just not even being intellectually credible. I want to challenge your mind. Do the homework. 
Because there is no more important thing for you to decide in your life. There is no important assignment for a human being than to think accurately about God. That is the most important challenge in front of every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl. There is no more important pursuit for life for anyone than to think accurately about God. Whether he exists or he doesn't. Whether he had a son or he didn't. Whether his son died for us or he didn't. Everything else about our life hangs on our answer to that question. I would challenge you. It's important for us to think accurately about God rather than thinking inaccurately about God. We as Christians turn to the Bible for our source of truth. But I recognize that in the room this morning, and I recognize on listening to our podcast, and I also recognize that you and I know people who probably would say, I don't turn to the Bible for a source of truth. I don't trust it entirely. It's not entirely accurate. So what we're trying to do in this series is, is, is show you how you can still take the basic facts of the gospel, whether you trust the Bible or not. It's history. What you have to decide is who was Jesus? Was he just a man? Or was he the son of God? There is no in-between. He was either one or the, or the other. Was he the son of God who took on flesh? Or was he a very tragically mistaken lunatic who thought he was the Messiah? And took this hoax and this deception the whole way to his death on the cross. That's what you have to decide this morning. So let's dig in a little bit. Really, I want to look at it this way. There's many people that believe our inability to pr- produce the body of Jesus Christ is such because it was a hoax. There are many, many, many people who believe that this is a legend, that this was made up. And even though we can't find the body of Jesus, they would say the reason the tomb was empty is because there is an elaborate conspiracy theory that we can't trust. Let me give you what some of the, the reasoning behind that argument is and then show how we, we who believe maybe like I do that this really did actually happen, that God actually raised him from the dead rather than people just took a, a corpse and hid it. Or, or whatever they did to it. Let, let me speak to this a little bit. There's a couple main reasons why people would say they think it's a hoax. Here's one of the most popular ones. They would say this. The reports of the Bible were written too long after the actual events. Here's what they'd say. They'd say, we don't really know what happened because texts like Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, we can't really trust them because we, we know they were written after the, 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 they were written many years after the case. They're legends. They're myths. They're good stories, they're inspirational, there's some good quotes in there, but they're not really history, they're not proper history. Therefore, we can't really know what these real events were. And I want to challenge that this morning. I want to challenge that, I want to challenge that specifically through the Gospel of Mark. If you're, the, if you're Mark, some of you are actually named Mark, like Mark Deanna. If you were Mark, the Gospel writer, and you wanted to write a made-up story. I want to show you why the way that Mark wrote would be the worst possible way if you're constructing a legend or a fairy tale to write a story. First of all, I want you to see, you know, if you read through the Gospel of Mark, and it wouldn't take long because it's very short, very easy read, you'd see that in Mark chapter 15, verse 40, and Mark chapter 15, verse 47, and in Mark chapter 16, verses 1, three times in the space of like two or three paragraphs, eight verses, Mark writes down the names of three women who saw this. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Salome. Three times. This is called redundancy. Some of you have written a paper before. And you have to get to like 500 words. And you're experts in redundancy. It's annoying when you're reading documents that are just redundant. They're saying the same thing 
over and over and over again. Now, keeping in mind that Mark wrote the shortest gospel, you've got to understand something. He was into economy of words. So if he repeats anything multiple times, he's really driving a point home. He writes down three times in eight verses the specific names of the three ladies, Mary of Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Salome. Why the redundancy? It really is kind of weird. You told us once, Mark, why do you keep telling us over and over and over again? And the answer to this is that Mark is showing us he's not writing a legend. He's writing history. This has all the earmarks of the way people who wrote history from that period wrote history. Let me tell you why. Ancient historians put more credibility on actual living eyewitnesses than maybe we do today. At the top of the food chain for accurate footnotes and citations were not internet studies, were not books on the wall, they didn't have a lot of them. The best way that you could give a footnote or citation to writing history in this period was by writing down the name of the person who at the time you were writing, you write their name down, you write who they were, so that anybody reading it who was skeptical could go cross-examine those people and find out whether or not what you're writing is true. So three times in eight verses, Mark is saying, maybe Mark wasn't one of these people that was there, but I've talked personally to the three people who were there. I'm going to write their names down, knowing that the people who read this can go to their house, knock on the door and say, Mary, I read what Mark wrote. Did this actually happen this way? If you're writing a fairy tale, you don't write down the name of all the eyewitnesses and invite people to go fact check your story. He wrote it down three specific times so that even people today who would read it with skepticism would say there's no, if he was making this up, he wouldn't leave a list of footnotes inviting us to go fact check. He almost wrote it in such a way knowing this is that important, I better fact check this whole thing and leave you a long paper trail that you can dig and dig and dig and dig and see that we can trust Matthew, we can trust Mark, we can trust Luke, and we trust John. Read through the gospel accounts. Read the couple first verses of Acts and see the little messages that they're sending us. This is the testimony that I've gotten from eyewitnesses, Luke says. Understand, he wasn't necessarily thinking of us 2,000 years later. He's writing in a time where he's saying, I know people aren't going to believe what I write. I'm going to put all the names down here. You go fact check my story and find out for yourself. I'm not afraid to say this is not a fairy tale. This, my friends, is history. And he's trying to tell you and me that we can trust the account. There, here's another reason why they say we can't trust it. Now, please don't get offended with me. A lot of people say there's a major problem with this, especially a lot of, of the Jewish community, because there's something in common about the three names that Mark listed. They're not all men. They were all female. And a big problem that people have is that at that time period, it was commonly held that females were very unreliable eyewitnesses. Please don't hate your pastor. (laughs) So female witnesses were very unreliable, so it was commonly held. Here's the thing. Even if you would go back and read the rabbinical Talmud, which is not really light reading. I don't know why you would read it, but if you would want to, you would read and see that in that day, the testimony of women was not even admissible in court. The reason I'm saying this is this. If you're Mark and you're writing the gospel down, and you want to convince people that your story that you're writing, this made-up story, is believable, you would not choose female eyewitnesses to make your story believable. You would write down a whole list of men that saw this happen. But what's interesting is that the men are nowhere to be found. You have three women, three women, 
who go, and these are the eyewitnesses that Mark writes down. Now, there was a pagan philosopher. He was a Greek guy. His name was Celsus. He lived 80 years after Jesus Christ lived. He wrote a lot, and he hated Christians. He was very, very, very down on Christianity. He wrote a lot of things about them negatively, and he wrote all the reasons why Christianity could not possibly be true, and he was very formidable. He had a lot of steam behind him. He had a lot of followers. Do you know what one of his strongest arguments was against the truth of Christianity? And I'll paraphrase a little bit, but he says, one of the reasons we know that Christianity can't be true is because the accounts of the resurrection are based entirely on the testimony of women. In fact, in his documents, he basically says, says, listen, all of us who are alive here in 100 AD, we all know how hysterical and unreliable women, you know, women can be. And everybody else in the ancient world said, yeah, this is a really big problem. It's a very, very, very big problem. So why did he know, why did Celsus know that this was an incredibly strong argument in those days? Because in ancient cultures, unfortunately, women were marginalized and it was hard to believe in their testimony. So you know what that means? If Mark was making this all up, he would have never gone this route. He would have come up with a more historically plausible defense. The fact that he writes down the names that all these people saw him is yet another reason why you and I can trust Mark's not making this up because if he did, he would have chosen a different story. He's telling us specifically, you can trust my story because this is what actually happened. The only possible reason to explain women in these accounts is if they, in fact, actually saw Jesus. So it's not a legend. It's not a legend. It must have happened or it never would have existed. You see, Mark's challenging your brain. He says this is a historical document. It really happened. That's a pretty strong case. One other reason, real quickly. One other reason why a lot of people today, and not just in this story, I talk to a lot of people who say, I've read the Bible. I've read it. Yet I do not believe all of its claims. Because once you take all the miracles out, and once you take out Jesus being the Christ. Once you take those things out, it's still a good read. I just can't possibly believe that all those things happened. It just seems way too radical for me to believe. And this is what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. What he says is somehow we think because we live 2,000 years later and we happen to have a worldview that says question everything, we don't believe what the mainstream media tells us. We don't believe what they're telling us about this or that. Uh, we don't trust any sources. We have a hard time today believing in things you can't explain, yet we think that the only reason we can think that way is because we have the advantage of thousands of years. Those people who lived in ancient times, however, they were so gullible. They just believed in any old thing. They'd be quick to believe in miracles. They'd be quick to believe in resurrection from the dead. The reason they wrote all this stuff is those people were just so incredulous and gullible down in those days that they must have had an easier time believing in the resurrection than we did. So they wrote it all down, and then we're that much smarter because we're that much more advanced because we live 2,000 years later. Can I show you how Mark tells us that he's right and we're wrong on that assumption? Because these people obviously did not believe that Jesus was going to raise from the dead any more than you and I have an easy time believing with it. First of all, if you read through the Gospel of Mark, again, he's very redundant. He writes down many times, here's what Jesus says. Jesus told his disciples many, many, many times, I'm going to die on the third day, I will rise again. I'm going to die on the third day, I'm going to rise again. A couple of verses later, on the third day, I'm going to rise again. A couple chapters later, on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Over and over and over. He says, I will die. Please be aware, on the third day, one, two, three, third day, I will rise from the dead. For three straight 
years, these disciples heard him say, I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise again on the third day. Jesus dies. He's buried. He's dead. He's in the tomb. One day. Two days. Three days. Who's at the tomb looking for him? No one. Wouldn't you think if they were making this up and the theme of the whole story is on the third day I'll rise again, on the third day I'll rise again, on the third, wouldn't you think at least one of these fellas, one of these disciples in the story would say, you know what? It's the third day. Hmm. Maybe we ought to just go check it out. What would it hurt? Let's just wander over to the tomb and see. None of them. Even the women on the way to the tomb, you know what they were, what were they carrying? Burial spices. They were not going to look for a resurrected Savior. They're going to treat a dead body. Who will roll the tomb away so we can go in and put spices on the dead body? I would submit to you, nobody back then believed he was going to be resurrected either. Just like you and I have a hard time, they had a hard time with it. Nobody was expecting it. Nobody was looking for it. And they had the benefit of listening to him for three years saying, I'm going to die and on the third day, I'm going to die and on the third day. Don't think that just because that we're 2,000 years advanced that this is somehow more difficult for us to believe than for them. None of them believed it either. Jews especially did not believe in anything being resurrected from the dead. But they all changed their minds. You know why? They let the historical evidence challenge their mind and challenge their heart. And I'm asking you to be willing to do the same thing. Will you let the evidence, the evidence of a living Jesus, a crucified Jesus, a buried Jesus, and a raised Jesus, would you just objectively look at the evidence and let it challenge your mind as to whether this is something we all just made up? Or whether, in fact, Jesus was everything he said that he was. Would you just objectively look at it and say, who really was this man? Don't think that just because you and I have the advantage of thousands of years, that we're somehow smarter than these people. They weren't looking for miracles either. They weren't looking for him to be raised from the dead. It wasn't easy for them to believe. But they went not looking for a miracle. And guess what? They found one and they walked away believing. Because they let the evidence of who Jesus was challenge their mind and change their mind. And challenge their heart and change their heart. Jesus is not afraid of you looking deeply into who he is. Because he knows if you will seek him with all your heart, you will find him. You'll find him. So very quickly, there's two possibilities to this discussion. Either the empty tomb is the result of a hoax. And that's the true historical story. And there's references to this in the Talmud. There's references to this um, in the writing of, of Josephus. And there's res- references to this in the writing of... There, there, there's a whole litany of things. If you want to search some more of this later, I can give you some more sources. But uh, we're going to cut to kind of the application side of this. There's two possibilities. Either this was a hoax. This is a big conspiracy. There's another one I couldn't... Because of time I can't get into this morning. One was actually hatched in the Bible. The other theory, his followers wanted to propagate this mystery. Somehow they rolled the stone away. They overcome the Roman guards... They stole his body. They hid it somewhere. We haven't found it. And then they were all willing to spend the rest of their lives happily dying to cover up this hoax. Come on. It is a possibility. It's just not plausible to me. You'd have to, it's easier for me to believe he raised from the dead than all that happened. <laughs> me personally. 
I'm the same way. Like, I've heard all the evolution, all the creation talk. Look, it's just easier for me. The hoops I have to jump over intellectually to get onto the evolution thing is much greater than me just believing that there's a God who made it all. I mean, just me personally. But let me look. There's two possibilities here. Either this was a hoax or God raised it from the dead. If this was a hoax, church, I need to speak to you for a moment. If this was a hoax, these three things are true. Number one, then the claims of the Bible are untrue. And Jesus was not the Christ. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians. Paul writes, and Pastor Stewart's going to preach from this passage next week. Let me tell you one of the things he says. And we apostles would all be lying about God because we've said that God raised Christ from the, de- from the grave. But this can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. He's speaking to Jews who believe that no one ever possibly could raise from the dead in this life or the afterlife. He says, and if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. Here's what you need to know. Because there are many people saying, Pastor... Even if they disprove Jesus was the Christ, and even if they disproved, and even if they find his body, I will still believe you fool. Then he's not. Then he's not. If he was not the Christ, then the Bible is a bunch of lies. If he's not the Christ and he didn't raise from the dead, then we're all lying. The claims of the Bible are untrue, and Jesus was not, in fact, the Christ. He was just a man who tragically died. You need to understand that when we, when we build our theology, when you take your little Jenga tower and you build it up with your theology, way down on the bottom is the fact that Jesus was the Christ. The Bible, I can trust it. Because if you pull that thing out, my whole tower falls because much of what I know about God has been revealed to me through the Bible. And if part of it is wrong, then I question the entire thing. If this really was a hoax it, ha- hoax, it has drastic ramifications to all of us, which is why I'm inviting you to look at this and scrutinize it, knowing that if this is wrong, then this is all just a hoax. This is all worthless. And I'm not afraid to have you look into it because on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. You pull that out from me, everything else falls apart, and I'm comfortable with that. I'm comfortable with that. Number two, if this was just a hoax, it means something else. It means faith in Christ is useless, and everyone is still guilty of their sins. Because if he didn't raise from the dead, he really didn't defeat sin and death, like the Bible says. You placing hope in Christ is as useful as you picking any other historic figure who is dead and buried and gone, and you putting your hope in them to save your soul. Here's the way Paul says it. I used his words. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is what? Useless. What's good for little? No. It is useless as a wet paper towel. It is useless. It is complete. And some of you are thinking, well, I can use a paper towel, wet paper towel for this other thing. Just, it's not a good illustration. Just skip that one. But it's still useless. It's still useless. If Christ has not been raised. See, there's a lot of people say, well, I believe in the teachings of Jesus. And I believe in the, if you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, your faith is useless. Because all you're doing is following a good writer, a good teacher. And there's plenty of them out there. God, in his infinite grace, did not know that what you and I needed was another teacher. We needed a sinless man to come to earth and live a sinless life, die in place for my sins, and defeat death. The the apostles did not give their lives going around teaching, teaching people, listen, love your neighbor and give water away and just be nice and you'll be saved. They were preaching the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. That's what changed the world. Not just the teaching and the sayings of Jesus, but what he did. And everyone is still guilty of their sins if he wasn't raised from the dead because payment was not made in full, was not accepted. He didn't complete the transaction. And you and I stand hopelessly guilty of our sins. Number three, we're completely and utterly hopeless. Here's what Paul says. 
And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, and we don't believe in the power of the resurrection, we are to be more pitied than anyone in this world. What he's saying is if what you and I believe about Jesus is a hoax and is not true, then everybody in the world should pity us more than anyone else because we're willing to live our entire lives hoping that we're right when in fact we're actually wrong. And we should be more pitied. But let's flip the script. If, in fact, Jesus was raised from the dead by God, I'll give you just two things. Pastor Stude will give you some more next week. I'll give you just two things that it means. Number one, if he was, in fact, raised, by the, raised from God by the dead, all who confess his lordship and believe in his resurrection will receive the gift of new life. There's two pieces to what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. He says, if you declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Last week we talked about what it means to confess. Here are the two things. If you want to be in right relationship with God, it happens through an experience we call salvation, to be saved. I cannot be saved by making myself good enough, smart enough. My morality and good behavior doesn't define my salvation. It is by God's grace through my faith. And what does it look like? It means the Bible says you have to declare Jesus is Lord over your life. There's a lot of people who want to be saved. They just don't want a Lord. We want to know we're going to heaven. We don't want to submit ourselves to God's control of our life. These are people who say, I'm going to heaven, but I'm allowed to keep my own opinions and my stances on the following 13 things, and God may not penetrate those areas of my life. That means you want a Savior, not a Lord, and you cannot have either or. You must accept both and. But then there's another piece here. He says in order to be saved, you don't necessarily have to confess you believe in the resurrection. He says, if you want to be saved, you must be absolutely convinced by faith in your heart. Not that Jesus was a good teacher, but that he was resurrected from the dead. If you really look at these facts, my friend, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. If you look, those of you on podcast, listen to me. If you already say, Pastor, you have convinced me historically that Jesus was resurrected by God from the grave. You are halfway there. Do you hear me? You're halfway there. If you believe that he was raised from the dead, you're halfway there. Now, pair that with just a willingness to confess. If he was raised from the dead, why wouldn't I want to make him the Lord over my life? And if you can just whisper that, think that, confess that to God, you will, in fact, be gloriously saved and transformed right there. If you're listening to this message right now, you can pause. Don't close your eyes if you're driving, but you can pause right now. And you can confess, Jesus, you are my Lord. Forgive me of my sins. I believe you were raised from the dead, and I welcome you into my life. And right there and then, you'll have the relationship with Jesus that many of us have experienced for ourselves. Number two, it means something else. If he, in fact, raised from the dead, we have freedom from the world and freedom for the world. If Jesus was really raised from the dead, it means we have freedom from this world and we have freedom for this world. Here's what it says in Mark 16, 6 and 7. It's just a little summary of what the angel said. It says two things. A, don't be alarmed. And now go and tell everybody. Don't be alarmed. But now go and tell. If you understand the resurrection, it gives you freedom from the world and freedom for the world. Here's what I mean by this. Let me apply this really briefly this morning. It means two things. Why is it so hard for us to face suffering? It's hard. I mean, suffering. You watch little kids struggling with cancer. Of course, we have a little girl, Sophia, not, not me personally. Moses and Lauren have a little girl, Sophia. 
A couple weeks ago, they found out she has a very large cancerous tumor. We've been praying and praying and praying and praying. And you know that cancer has shrunk by 25% already. There's a little fight in her. But it's hard. It's hard. It's hard for us to face suffering. Why is it so hard for us to face thoughts of our own death or the death of somebody else? Why is it so hard for us to face the death of loved ones? Why is it so hard to face disablement for disease, physical ailments that keep us from being able to do what we need to be able to do? That's hard. The loss of our own hair, all these things, it's hard. Why is it so hard sometimes to do the right thing when you know it's going to cost you? Why is it so hard sometimes to give when your heart says, I want to give, and I'm kind of able to give, but it's going to mean... For me to give in the way I want to give is going to mean I'm going to have to give up some things that I want to have. Why is that so hard for us? Why is it so hard to do the right thing when it costs you? It costs you money? It costs you your reputation? Have you wanted to do kind, a kind act for somebody, but you were worried about what people would think if you did it and they saw it? Why is that so hard? I'll tell you why. It's so hard to face our broken world because we think this broken world is the only thing we're ever going to have. That's why it's hard. It's hard because sometimes we think, I can't deal with the thoughts of my own death because this is the only life I'm ever going to have. I can't deal with the thoughts of giving or suffering financially because this is the only money or wealth that I'll ever have. I can't deal with the thoughts of all the disappointments I've had in love because this is the only love that I'll ever experience. The reason why we struggle so much with suffering and death and giving even when it costs us is because we think what we see around us is all that we will ever have. And if we lose it, we will, we will forever have lost it, and there's nothing more to look forward to. We feel like this money is the only money we're ever going to have. This body is the only body we're ever going to have. And the doctrine of the resurrection doesn't say that. The doctrine of the resurrection does not say, oh, someday you'll get to heaven and you'll get consolation for all the things you've lost on earth. The doctrine of the resurrection says God is going to renew this material world, which means we're going to get back all the things we lost. We're going to get the things we never had in the material world. That means if you can't dance now, guess what? If you believe in the resurrection, there's going to be a day when you can dance like no one's ever seen. That means if you can't kneel now, there's going to be a day that you can kneel. That means if you've never experienced love on this earth, there will be a day the resurrection tells you that there will be a day when you will be loved more perfectly than you've ever known. If you felt lonely here... You'll have more fulfillment than you've ever felt in your life. If you felt like you've always struggled financially, there will be a day where you will have wealth and blessing from God that you cannot count or imagine. That's what the resurrection says. The resurrection says this isn't the end. And guess what? If you know that this isn't your final body and this isn't your final bank account, hello? And this isn't your final feeling towards God and people. If you know that this isn't it, then you can feel free from the world to give, to do, to live, to act however you want to, because this isn't the end. And guess what? If people want to make fun of you or pick on you, who cares? Who cares? You're free from the tug of the world to be what they tell you you need to be, because this is not your final resting place. The resurrection says, if I believe in Jesus Christ, I'm going to get a new body and a new heaven and a new earth, and I'm going to receive the blessings that God has always wanted to share with me, and I will be able to run and not get tired. I'll be able to walk and never faint. I will be in uninterrupted relationship with Jesus forever. I'll have a whole new value system. I won't have to fight sin anymore, and you can be free to live the life God wants you to live and not worry that what you're doing is losing when you're really winning. It's not about the temporary. It's about the eternal. That's what it means. Then you have freedom for the world. As I invite the worship team to come, and we'll close right here. 
it not only shows you that you have freedom from the world and the pressure that it puts on us to keep and to have and to answer all of our questions. The resurrection proves that God actually loves the world itself. Because see, here's the thing. Every other major world religion describes salvation as this kind of esoteric, out-of-body experience. It's an escapism. It's like every other major world religion describes salvation as an escape from the material world. Your soul goes off to heaven or you go off into another realm of consciousness or something like that. What the Bible teaches, what Jesus shows us about the resurrection, we'll talk more about this next week. What the Bible shows is that the resurrection proves that God doesn't want to just save your soul. He wants to save our bodies. He doesn't want to just save the spiritual part of us. He also wants to save the physical part of us. It proves that God really must hate disease. He must hate poverty. He must hate hunger. He must hate death because he hates them. And the resurrection proves that he does because the Bible says he resurrected from the grave to defeat those things. We can start also partnering with him to fight against those things and work against those things. And I just have to be honest with you. At sometimes it smacks me in the face. The worst thing about ordinary life is that it's always wasting away. If you really sit down and think about it, there's some really good parts of this life and this earth that God made. Ordinary life sometimes is like me last night, movies in the park. I sit down in my chair to watch the movie, which I was able to do because there's like 40 or 50 people there serving left and right. I could actually sit down in a chair. My little three-year-old, who all week long has been, Daddy, how many more sleeps till movies in the park? How many more sleeps till movie in the park? How many more sleeps till movie in the park? Like, go to sleep, I'll tell you tomorrow. You know, He comes and he crawls up on my lap with his bag of popcorn. My wife comes and sits down in the chair next to me, and she reaches out her hand to me to take her hand, and I'm sitting there. I'm holding my wife's hand. My son's happy. We're watching a movie. Say all you want to say about life. That was, my life is not terrible. I have a happy wife and a healthy son. What more is there after that? The worst thing about it is then there's also part of me saying, he's never going to be this little again. And this, you know, you know my, like, can you just enjoy the moment for a second? Like, <laughs> the worst thing about ordinary life is that you recognize that, oh, this is a fleeting moment. And I have this trouble sometimes enjoying the moment. Friday night, I had the honor of being a very, very tiny part of of the Teen Challenge of Baltimore Crab Feast and just being there and all the hard work that Mark and Sue Deanna did and Stephanie Deanna did and so many of you were involved and so many were there participating and Pastor Brian and Liz were there and Rajiv was there because Suba doesn't eat meat so Brian got, Rajiv got to go and eat all the, (laughs) I'm just looking around at the smiling faces and all that, it was good. You see, God so loved the world, the world, ordinary life, Oceans and mountains and Costa Rica and all these other places. that I say that because that's where Lincoln and Leanna just came back from. God made this whole world. And he just wants to renew it and to redeem it and to make it new and to give it back to us in a pure and a whole way that we can enjoy forever and ever and ever. You see, when you understand the resurrection, you have freedom from this world, but you also have freedom for this world. Because there are many, 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 many people here that God doesn't want to destroy. He loves them all. Anybody who wants to find Jesus Christ can be said, he has love for the world. He has love for ordinary life. He wants to give us freedom so that we can enjoy nights in front of the movies, holding hands with a person that you love, so that you can enjoy sitting in the beach and putting your toes in the water and reading a book, so that you can enjoy quiet moments alone, so that you can enjoy the things about life that we have. 
See, when you have freedom in Christ, ordinary life can have a level of enjoyment that you can't have if you think it's just wasting away, never to be returned to you again. That's the freedom that we found in Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want to lead us in a prayer. Then we're going to invite the worship team to come and and close us out with a song of of declaration and celebration. But just before that they come, can you bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning? As you do, I want to give you a second just to think about, here's what I want you to think about, of everything you heard this morning, and you won't remember all of it. I don't remember all of it, and I said it. What's maybe the one thing that right now you, you can say, you know what, at that moment this morning, I was really dialed in, and I think there was really something for me to think about, maybe even something to do about that. Can you go to that moment right now? As you're thinking about that, I want to invite our prayer team just to come, our, those of our pastors and leaders that are serving on our prayer team, if you just come. Maybe your one thing this morning is I'm ready to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I'm looking at the facts, and I'm convinced. Jesus is who he said he was. He is who the Bible says that he is. I don't believe he was just a man. I don't believe that all this stuff was just a legend that was made up. I believe he is the Christ, the Son of God. And I want to be made right, and I want to be made right with God, and I want to do it right now. Perfect. Let me be crystal clear. We already gave you the simple way to do that. Let me say it again. All you have to do, the Bible says, is have faith and believe. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead, and you'll be saved. So if that's the decision you want to make this morning, you can pray a simple prayer just like this. You can say, Dear God, thank you for sending your Son to the earth to live a sinless life, to die in my place, and you raised him from the dead. I believe in my heart, God, you raised Jesus from the dead. So I confess with my mouth, Jesus, you are not just the Lord. You are my Lord. I confess to you that I've fallen short of the standard you've set for all of us. I have sinned. I've sinned against you. Please forgive me, God. And apply the payment that Jesus has already made. Take that payment and I receive it to be applied to my account. And friend, just that simply, what you're experiencing right now is Jesus Christ giving you brand new life. That's what you're experiencing this morning. And if that's what you're experiencing, if you've made that decision, the next most important step for you is to tell somebody about it. Tell maybe the person who invited you. Tell any one of our, of our team, maybe somebody that shook your hand on the way in this morning. You can even take your Connect card before you leave this morning and mark the box that said, I made a decision to follow Jesus today because we want to celebrate with you and get you just moving, rocketing forward in your relationship with God. 